Hello, and thank you for listening to Living Wealthy Radio, heard around the web on livingwealthyradio.com, iTunes, and Blog Talk Radio. I am Teresa Kuhn, helping you live wealthier. Resources are available for you at livingwealthyradio.com. Are you feeling a bit better about the economy than you have in recent years? Or are you concerned that we are still following many of the same policies and generally heading in the wrong direction? Is a market correction looming in the near future? Well, many in this country are concerned about their standard of living and investments. But what can we do to protect our assets and stand up for our rights? Well, our guest today, Mark Nesman, is an author, speaker, expert on global wealth protection. He is the founder of Sovereign Society and author of The Life Vote Strategy, and he's going to share his insights with us on the disturbing trends in this country and what we can do about it. So welcome to Living Wealthy Radio, Mark. Nice to have you on the show. Uh, Teresa, it's great to be here. Thank you for inviting me. So, Mark, tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and how you started this work in asset protection. Sure. Well, I'm 61 years old, and uh, really for about the last 30 years, I've been researching matters relating to uh, privacy and wealth preservation. And I was fortunate enough to have um, uh, Congressman Ron Paul, who uh, I suspect most of your listeners know about, jumpstart my career uh, in the uh, in the early 80s, actually probably in the mid-80s, when he endorsed my first book relating to privacy. It was called How to Achieve Personal and Financial Privacy in the Public Age. Now, it turns out that privacy and asset protections are, uh, protection are related concepts. And the reason for that is that if an adversary doesn't know where to look for an asset, he or she is less likely to find it. <clears throat> now, of course, we like to see clients create legal entities and, and contracts as well, that have the effect of protecting assets. But privacy is certainly a very key strategy to all of this. Um, as, you, um, as you mentioned, I'm one of the founders of the Sovereign Society in the 90s. I was also the original editor of the Oxford Club back in the 1980s, which is a, a fairly uh-huh. large uh, publication now. And I'm still on the board of experts for the Sovereign Society. Uh, back in 1999, I started the Nestman Group with a focus on consulting services and, uh, and publishing, again, in the, in the international wealth preservation area. Now, I did feel a need to get some, uh, my original background is actually in the sciences, um, and I wanted to get some, I wanted to get some uh, background in uh, professional credentials. So I went to Vienna and enrolled at the Vienna University of Business and Economics for a master's degree in international tax law, and I finished that back in 2005. So saving tax is, of course, analogous to protecting assets, and that if your planning is successful, then you have more assets than you would have had otherwise. So um, you know, between the privacy, asset protection, and international tax, uh, we think we you know, have a number of hats that we wear here that uh, can put together some pretty comprehensive plans for folks out there who are looking to uh, preserve their wealth. Very good. So you certainly have uh, quite the credentials, and uh, I did not realize that you were part of the Oxford Club many years ago. Uh, so those in, in my niche or those that follow my work certainly have are, are familiar with Ron Paul and probably are very fond of Ron Paul and that line of thinking and certainly um, the Oxford Club and Lou Rockwell and um, all the others that you hang out with. Oh, sure. Uh, well, and well, Lou, Lou and I used to co-edit Ron Paul's newsletter back in the 80s. 
Oh, very good. Very good. And the Masters of Law in International Tax Law that you have, if it was from the United States, you would need a law degree in order to get the LLM in, in the U.S. But in Vienna, it's not required to have a background in law? Well, it is. I was able to, based on experience, I was able to waive that, uh, the requirement for, a, uh, for an undergraduate law degree. Okay. Very good. So... You've been around a long time. You've been having this conversation, it seems like, uh, for almost 40 years. Well, close to it, probably 30 anyway. Okay, all right. And what's the difference from when you started in this conversation, right, let's say 30 years ago to today? What what changes have you seen? Well, the the main change is that our, our financial situation in America and really the entire world has become much more precarious. Uh, the debt bubble has become much more dangerous, in my view. Uh, the, um, the, the instruments of mass financial destruction, I call them, such as you know, the reliance on, on tools like quantitative easing, uh, the explosive growth of uh, these black box derivatives contracts and so on, have made, have made things, I think, a much more, have made things much more precarious, and we sort of saw a preview of what can happen back in 2007-2008. Since then, it's only gotten worse. We're now talking about um, unraveling a lot of the reforms that were enacted to prevent a recurrence of 2007-2008, and I'm just uh, very nervous that we're going to see some uh, just some real catastrophic economic changes in the uh, in the next, and I can't can't give you an exact time frame, but certainly in the next few years, if we don't change course and have a, a real radical restructuring of, of our reliance on debt, our reliance on um, you know, tools like quantitative easing uh, provided by central banks and so on, that we're really headed into, a, uh, into some uncharted waters that could be very dangerous. From the standpoint of overall threats to individual wealth or maybe the, the wealth of our country, country and global, I, don't, I think it's all related and correlated, does the current Trump administration represent a significant change from uh, the Obama uh, policy or a Hillary Clinton presidency? You know, it really does uh, in, in different ways. In some ways it's better, in some ways it's worse. I mean, I think that um, certainly the Trump administration in terms of tax policy um, and and also in terms of its unwillingness to sort of um, engage with some of these international, um, you know, some of these IGOs, for instance, like the International Monetary Fund, to coordinate uh, what the what the IMF is, uh, has proposed—a global confiscation of assets to fund the welfare state. I suspect the the Trump administration would be much less willing to go along with that than a Hillary Clinton administration. Um, on the other hand, I think Trump is a larger threat in terms of his willingness to shred constitutional protections for uh, property rights, uh, especially in the area of uh, something called civil forfeiture, which we can talk about a bit later. Uh, and also, I'm, uh, I'm nervous about his threats to make it easier for public figures to sue their critics. I think this is uh, just going to be an e- a, a if, if he's successful with that, then we're going to have an epidemic of, uh, of lawsuits even more than we do now. Interesting. So let's go ahead and discuss civil forfeiture now. How, in your opinion, um, well, explain what it is for those who are not familiar and why it really is a significant threat to landowners and people who have cash or uh, it's a threat to private property rights. 
Sure. Well, civil forfeiture actually, um, the, the advocates of civil forfeiture say it all starts in the Bible. Um, and there's a passage in Exodus that talks about if an ox gores someone and that person dies, the ox shall be destroyed, will be killed, and the flesh of the ox shall not be eaten. And the ox basically becomes a cursed object, and, and it needs to be kept away from people and, you know, flesh not eaten and all that. So, um, so this is the su supposed basis for civil forfeiture. The key difference, though, and how it corrupts the biblical story is that with civil forfeiture, yes, they seize the asset. They seize something that, that injures someone or something that, that related to a crime, uh, and there's no, uh, there's no due process necessary. It's just a, um, you, know, it's just a uh, you don't need to be found guilty. You don't need to be arrested. Essentially, the property is under arrest, and the property then is, is conveyed to the seizing agency. Um, now, I never heard of this um, until, the, until the early 90s. Uh, when I learned that, that police were planning to seize a house I owned in Florida under a civil forfeiture procedure. And it turned out that um, I'd rented it out. I'd rented it out to some young people uh, through an agent. It turns out the young people were allegedly dealing drugs in the house. And, and I have no reason to think that they weren't dealing drugs. I, in fact, I went down there, and it was pretty, pretty clear that they, that they were after I got them out. Well, the cops came in and said, well, you know, we tried to reach you. We couldn't reach you, so we're going to put your house under arrest and, and seize the house. And I was astonished that they could do this. Now, in the end, they did not go through with it because I had such a large mortgage on the house that there was very little equity. And after they sold the place at auction, they, the cops would not have wound up with anything. So I got to keep the house. But I was shocked that something like this was possible in America. Now, the legal theory behind civil forfeiture is the property and not its owner is guilty of a crime. And so if the government alleges that your property somehow was involved in or facilitated a crime, then they can seize it. And because this is a civil procedure, none of the protections that would apply in a criminal proceeding are in place. Essentially, your property is presumed guilty. And if you can't prove that it's innocent, you'll lose it. And if you don't have at least $20,000, that's a going right to hire an attorney to, to contest one of these things, that you're unlikely to ever get it back. Now, civil forfeiture laws are one of the main reasons I've long recommended that our clients keep a generous portion of their wealth outside the U.S. And the reason is, is that most other countries won't honor a U.S. civil forfeiture award unless there's an accompanying criminal proceeding. In other words, they actually want you to be found guilty of something before they grab your property. And so for that reason, they won't honor it. Yet in the vast majority of civil forfeitures, the property owner is never accused of any crime. So that means the vast majority of civil forfeitures in the U.S. will not be enforced by any, any other country. I think it's a real plague. Unfortunately, Jeff Sessions and Donald Trump, uh, Jeff Sessions, our attorney general in the Trump administration, and President Trump himself, are big fans of civil forfeiture. They bought into the lie that civil forfeiture is essential to keep police budgets healthy, and uh, I reject that absolutely. I think that police, you know, police should concentrate on solving crimes, not on trying to shake down people for, uh, for their property. So what is it about tr Trump and Jeff Sessions, uh, what is it about their worldview that makes them think that civil forfeiture and 
the property itself can be guilty separate from the owner. Because private property rights really are what made America so different from our Constitution and our Republic and founding fathers. I mean, their worldview was that private property rights were so important to to creating the the government and the country that they created with America. You know, that's a great question, Teresa. And I and I I'm not you know I'm not privy to you know Jeff Sessions or Donald Trump's personal worldview, but I do know that. Um, you know, the police and sh- uh, sheriffs and prosecuting attorneys and so on out there are very supportive of civil forfeiture because there have been so many cutbacks in police budgets nationwide over the last 20 or 20 or 30 years. So the reality is in many states and many cities and many counties, um, civil forfeiture is actually responsible for is, is actually it's budgeted into the budget. So if you don't have so many millions of dollars coming in every year from civil forfeiture, you're going to have to start laying off cops. So I think just as a practical matter uh, of you know not having to go to the taxpayer and say we need to raise taxes on you, we just will start seizing people's assets. And since the chances of you being a civil forfeiture victim statistically are fairly small, um, you know this is perpetuated. Got it. Interesting. Because, you know, Trump is certainly um, an entrepreneur, and uh, I know that he, I've heard that he's used the civil forfeiture, uh, well, he's used eminent domain, right? He's used eminent domain very aggressively. Very aggressively. And, however, I'm sure he'd be the first to argue that his property, right, his property rights are... um, Supreme to, to anything else. And Jeff Sessions comes from a conservative background. So it really, I hear what you're saying. And I, I think, in fact, you are correct with my understanding of their view. But it seems very in conflict with the rest of their positions. Um, yeah, it, it but, is. I think this is sort of justified as well by the, you know, by the demographics. And, and I mean, the fact is that most people who yeah, you know, most people who have property that is, I mean, let, let me walk you through a typical civil forfeiture case, and you'll you'll see why these people aren't particularly sympathetic. Um, and and this is Philadelphia is a great example. Philadelphia is, is a heavily minority city. Um, most of the civil forfeiture there happens among the you know the black population and the Hispanic population. So this is an actual case. Um, you know, teenage boy happens to be black uh, out in front of the family home, and he's selling marijuana and sells pot to an undercover policeman. Well, since he's using the, you know, since he's using his bedroom and the home to keep his pot, um, under the civil forfeiture laws, they can seize the house. So the police go in and seize the house from the parents, even though they didn't know anything about the kid selling marijuana. Yeah, but under, the, under Pennsylvania law, uh, the parents are responsible for what the minor children are doing in terms of, of, uh, of legalities. And so the kid might wind up just having to spend a couple nights in, in juvenile detention, maybe go to a, into a substance abuse program. Uh, the family then loses the family home. And, mm. uh, uh, and this happens over and over and over again, but because it's drug-related, I mean, there's not a lot of sympathy to that. And people say, well, the parents should have known the kid was out there selling marijuana. Maybe they did, maybe, maybe they didn't. Uh, but it doesn't make any difference. There's never any inquiry into that. It's, there's no innocent owner defense that they can present. Under uh, under the rules in, in Philadelphia that apply, and and so they lose their house, and this happens time and time again. 
your strategy of having assets outside of the U.S. to protect or to shield some assets from the civil forfeiture laws, is, are those strategies that are only available to wealthy people, or is this something that middle America uh, can benefit from? Well, it's, it's, it's becoming increasingly expensive to do anything internationally. Um, it used to be much easier for middle America to, uh, to, to do this. I mean, when I, I opened my first Swiss bank account in 1986 with, with a $2,000 deposit. Now, today, unless you live in Switzerland and have, actually have a residence permit, you're not going to be able to touch a Swiss bank account for under half a million dollars. Uh, there are some other countries we can work with which are a lot lower. Um, if you're willing to go to Vienna... Uh, where I lived, I mean, you can walk into a bank in Vienna, and uh, there are a few of them that still deal with Americans. And for probably 10,000 euros, which is about $11,000, you can get an account open. Um, if you go down to Panama, it's even less, but you you know you better speak some Spanish and uh, be ready to deal with some red tape, or or take along a, a friend who does speak some Spanish to deal with the banks down there. So yes, it's possible. Uh, the minimums are higher. The hassles are more, and it's more expensive just because the uh, the IRS and the powers that be have been trying to, to stamp this out for some time. Hmm. I see. Well, let's, uh, let's change topics a little bit. And this kind of goes to what you're saying in terms of having a, a backup plan. Well, actually, I call it a backup plan. I call it a battleship plan. You call it a, a plan B. Um, so you're a big advocate for people putting together this Plan B just in case, right? What does this Plan B consist of, and what are its most important components? Well, I look at it. This is very holistically, and and uh, you know, I, I look at and when I you know when a client contacts me, I look at their age, I look at their net worth, I look at their occupation, I look at their financial stability, I look at their fi- their family situation, where they live. Uh, what their temperament is, and so on. But basically, the very first thing you do is right here at home. And we're talking about things that, you know, that our parents taught us to do, hopefully, or maybe even our grandparents. Uh, And that's things like financial self-sufficiency. Save enough money to support yourself and those you care about in a financial crisis. Try to get out of debt. Um, You know, once once you do that, start accumulating some uh, an emergency fund at home. Cash, you know, small denomination uh, gold and silver coins, food storage, um, fuel storage, weapons, ammunition, uh, burglar alarm, that sort of thing. Uh, maybe a you know, maybe a backup generator, sort of a survival type situation, just in case one day you know the ATM start working, it stops working, electricity goes out, you have some social unrest in the streets. You're prepared. You can hunker down and you know tough it out for you know hopefully a few days to you know to a month or two. Um, and hopefully none of this happens, obviously, but this is, uh, this is an area where I think it really pays to be prepared. The nice thing is once you've got this put in, in, in place, I mean, there's not that much to it. I mean, you go ahead and, and rotate your, uh, your food storage, you rotate your fuel, um, you know, every now and then you, you know, you go out and, and go to the target range and, and, and target practice with your, with your firearms and so on, buy some more ammunition. But this doesn't take a lot of maintenance. The next thing you want to do is to get assets out of your own name, if possible. Now, this isn't always, this isn't always a great idea with, the, with your family home, because there tend to be some state law protections that will, uh, uh, that will protect uh, homes if you own them in your own name. These are called homestead laws. They're, they're really good in some states like Texas, uh, 
Uh, other states like New Jersey, they're almost non-existent. So you have to look to see how much protection you have there. But uh, we really like the idea of, a, of an LLC, a limited liability company. Uh, we like Delaware because they're, you know, they're very private. We like Arizona as well because they're, they're cheap out here. They're not as private as in, as in Delaware. Your name would be associated with it as the owner. In Delaware, it's not. And you can then title your bank accounts, your stock accounts, and so on in the name of the LLC rather than your own name. What that does is if there's a if somebody is sizing you up for a lawsuit, and the U.S. is the world's leader in lawsuits, I think we have something like 90% of the world's lawyers and around 90% of the world's lawsuits in this country. So if someone is sizing you up for a lawsuit and they can't find any assets in your name um, you know, because they're all in LLCs, they're much more likely to bypass you and go on to the next victim instead of suing you. So we really like the idea of this is a great privacy technique. It's also a good asset protection technique because LLCs are protected by a concept called the charging order, which means if, um, if someone sues you uh, and then tries to get assets that you own out of the LLC, there's a, they're not automatically entitled to that, uh, to that relief. Now, they're going to have to apply to the judge and get the judge to issue something called a charging order. And what that means is that any distributions from the LLC are going to go to the creditor. But if you don't make any distributions from the LLC, then the creditor is not going to get his money. So it's sort of shark repellent that way and uh, much easier to come to a, uh, a settlement, a reasonable settlement, maybe for pennies on the dollar than if you had all that in your own name. And, again, it gets it out of your name. So it's, it's, a, uh, it's a great strategy for privacy and a great strategy for asset protection. After that, um, we like to see people – uh, start thinking about getting some assets outside the United States. And we talked a little bit about that, whether it be a, you know, a bank account in Panama for $1,000 or a Swiss bank account for half a million dollars. Again, we'd like to see these accounts held in LLCs rather than in your own name. Um, precious metals outside the United States. Uh, for wealthy clients, for someone who has more than you know, uh, $250,000, we like, we like international LLCs. Nevis is a jurisdiction that we work a lot with. I actually own a trust company in Nevis, so we can do this sort of under one roof because we create and administer these ourselves in Nevis through our, our, our company, Fortress Trust Company. Um, then after that, we really like the idea of setting up a uh, – buying some real estate overseas. Uh, the idea of a bolt hole, just a place that you can go to if things get rough in the United States – and you can do this domestically as well. I mean, we have a lot of uh, a lot of people here in Phoenix will uh, uh, will buy a place up in the mountains, and they'll go up there and, and spend time in the in the summer when it's hot. And uh, that also happens to be away from the population centers that there's some social unrest in the in the big cities, and that works. I mean, but we like the idea of, of going a step beyond that and actually having a place outside the United States completely. Um, and that can be pretty much anywhere, but you want to make sure that you have it in, in a country where there's some stability, respect for property rights. Uh, I mean, the last thing you want to do is go from the frying pan to the fire and buy a place in Zimbabwe, and then the socialist government decides to confiscate it because it's owned by Yankees. Um, the next thing we like to do is to set up a uh, – have the client set up a legal residence outside the United States, and in other words, the right to live in another country. Uh, there are some countries where it's easier to do than others. Uh, Panama is very popular because Panama, in Panama, uh, you don't actually have to live in Panama to get residency down there. You get residency down there, and you, and you only have to stay one day every two years 
to maintain your residence permit. But then you can go back anytime you want to to uh, stay as long as you want. Um, now, you can buy something in that country if you want and rent it out in the meantime. But in, in Panama, that's not necessary. In other countries, they do have minimum residential requirements. Sometimes you have to buy uh, real estate there in order to qualify for residence. And then finally, the idea of a second nationality, get a second citizenship and passport. Uh, we've been in this business for about 10 years now. We specialize in the Commonwealth of Dominica, uh, which is a Caribbean jurisdiction. Uh, you can actually purchase citizenship from Dominica. There's an extensive due diligence process necessary to do that. Uh, the costs start around 130000 including all the fees. Um, and it is, what, it, what it does is if for any reason your U.S. passport is withdrawn, rejected, I mean, as you may know, um, they can take away your U.S. passport now if you owe money to the IRS, more than $50,000. So if you want a backup plan to travel internationally, uh, or live internationally, if your U.S. passport is withdrawn, then a second passport is a great idea. So that's a, those are the those are the essential elements of this of this Plan B that we uh, that we espouse. Wow, those are great great suggestions. Uh, I think for many middle class people, they might think that um, having a, a second passport is a luxury and not something that is within their reach. But I think a lot of the suggestions that you gave were great for just staying here. If you're staying here in the U.S., right, um, get away from the urban areas, have oh, sure. you know, a cheap place up up in the mountains, et cetera, right, like you mentioned. Well, and, and the, the, you're right. The second passport tends to be a, a strategy more for wealthy and, and very wealthy people. I mean, for instance, uh, um, Peter Thiel, who is a, you know, one of Trump's advisors, a very billionaire, he, has a, he, has a new, he actually has a New Zealand passport. So uh, this, is, this is actually a fairly common strategy with, uh, with wealthy people. Yes, and to get a New Zealand um, citizenship is very, very expensive. Only really wealthy people can do so. Unless, That's correct. Um, yeah. I mean, it, it, it requires just to uh, just to get residency there is um, you need to, to. I mean, there's a lottery, but to to win the lottery, basically, the more money you put in, the the better your chances in the lottery. And the magic number is about you know, 10 million New Zealand dollars, or about seven and a half million U.S. So it's it's not a cheap. That's uh, exactly. It's not a cheap place to do it. Right, exactly what I was thinking. Now, I do have clients who have decided to uh, change residencies to another country, and they're not necessarily wealthy, um, certainly strong middle class, and they've made, they've made the choice to, to leave. What is your opinion on setting up residency in another country that is tied to the dollar? And I think we can transition into this whole dollar conversation, right? Um, sure. What's going sure. on with cash as well? Well, I think that has you know that has both <laughs> pros and cons. I mean, I, I happen to have residency in Panama, which is a dollarized country, and it's terrific because it gives me. First of all, I can open I can you know I can open bank accounts down there and get much higher interest rates in dollars than I can in the U.S. So you can get a <clears throat> you can buy CDs in Panama, perfectly safe banks that are paying four four or five percent a year, which is about ten times what you would get in uh, in the U.S. Um, mm-hmm. The other thing that you can do is if you buy property, they have a you know there's a very well organized mortgage financing industry in in Panama, and it's, it's relatively easy to get a mortgage down there because it's dollarized and it's a it's a very liquid market. Um, the downside is that if we ever have a dollar you know a really serious dollar devaluation, 
um, Panama imports a lot of stuff. And anything, you know, if there's a dollar devaluation, then what Panama is importing is all of a sudden going to become much more expensive, especially energy, because they import almost all their energy. So all that energy, I mean, there's some hydropower down there, but 80 or 90 percent of the energy is, is imported. And so all of a sudden, if that's two or three times as expensive, that's going to be a real, real issue for, for Panama. The other issue is that most of their revenue is from the Panama Canal, and so and those tolls are in dollars, and so if, if, if those tolls come in all of a sudden much less valuable, then you have a, you've got a real budgetary crisis there. So that's the downside. So there's, there's pros and cons. Uh, as long as things are going well, it's great. But if things, you know, <laughs> if the dollar goes off the track, then, uh, then that could be a real problem. Right, right. So let's talk about the war on cash. It seems like there is such a movement from the powers that be to move to a cashless society. And numerous countries now are restricting the use of cash. What do you, you know, think? That's, ab- that's absolutely true. I think this is maybe a shocking prediction for your readers, but I, I predict that cash as an asset class will effectively disappear in the next 10 years, uh, except in maybe some small undeveloped economies. Uh, all, all major economies, uh, U.S., U.K., Britain, Japan, Singapore, uh, Australia, New Zealand, and so on, will effectively ban cash, and everything will be cashless. Uh, the government hates cash because it's anonymous, uh, and this is an impediment toward tax collection. Now, you know they they pretend this is in the, in, to fight to fight crime, um, you know, and that's and that's the boogeyman everybody puts up. But basically, the real reason they want to get rid of it is they want to make it impossible to do business off the books in cash. Uh, and if you have everything tied to a bank account, then uh, then then you have that. There, there's another more sinister purpose that most of them don't admit. Um, and that's it allows the government to enforce negative interest rates. Um, and we have negative interest rates all over the world now. We don't have them in the U.S. yet, but we certainly have them in, in all over Europe and in Japan, and even in Switzerland has negative interest rates. Uh, and a great way to fight back against negative interest rates, you just take your money out of the bank and, and put it in a strong box or a safe at home. Well, if you get rid of cash, then you no longer have that option. So you have no you have no choice but to keep the money in the bank and then it goes the value goes down every year with negative interest rates um so yeah how do you fight back against this i think i think it's inevitable by the way i don't think there's you know this is so attractive to the powers that be i don't see any way of this is going to be delayed i think trump uh probably would not be as cooperative as a as a hillary clinton let's say in uh in in having the united states go go down this path He's not going to be around forever, so I, I think it's inevitable. And he may be forced to go along with it. Um, so how do you, you know, how do you deal with it? Well, uh, tangible assets, basically, uh, gold. Uh, we like uh, digital currencies. All these assets we talked about to set to, uh, to set up a uh, to set up at home, you know, your you know, food, water, uh, weapons, and so on. All these are tangible assets. All these things are great assets to convert your cash into. A barter, I think, is going to come back in a big way. Uh, digital currencies like Bitcoin, if you're if you're knowledgeable about that, I think that's worth checking out. I highly recommend that your listeners get a hold of an old book. It's out of print now, but you can still buy it. It's called the Alpha Strategy uh, by my old colleague from the Sovereign Society, Jack Pugsley, who's uh, died a few years ago. Now, this book was written back in the 70s, 
and it's written to deal with hyperinflation and the idea that the dollar is worthless. Well, um, and, the, and, and Jack's idea basically was is what I'm saying. You buy stuff instead of accumulating dollars. And so I think he's got some great strategies in there toward, you know, you know what, what assets are, are best to barter, what, what, sorts of, you know, what sorts of items are good for long-term storage, what, what items aren't so good for long-term storage. And it's a great, I think it's a great resource in, in a uh, potentially cashless society. And that's called the Alpha Strategy, the, the Ultimate Alpha Plan strategy. of Financial Self-Defense? Uh, that, right, that may be the subtitle. Okay, great. Well, it's on, it's on Amazon for, uh, for less than $4. You could pick up that book. So that sounds like a, like a great, great resource. And you like the Bitcoins and electronic currency? You're a fan? Well, I'm not an expert at it. I'm not a computer geek. Uh, I have clients who are. They're very comfortable with the concept. Um, we're not set up the Nesco group yet to accept Bitcoin transactions. Uh, it's not quite there yet in terms of uh, in terms of being mainstream. And I'm not even sure that Bitcoin is going to be the wind up being the you know, being the go-to digital currency. But I think this is a concept which is very promising. Uh, and the reason is there are a couple reasons. Number one, it's very the authentication chain of transactions. You can authenticate a transaction very easily. Uh, it's potentially anonymous. It's peer-to-peer, which means you don't have to have a bank involved, um, and it's also impossible for a government to get in there and uh, devalue it by quantitatively easing it or something like this. I mean, Bitcoin is based on a computer algorithm, uh, and so it's not based on, on uh, banking transactions. It's not based on quantitative easing. It's not based on uh, creating uh, assets out of thin air or dollars out of thin air the way that um, the Federal Reserve and other central banks do. So I think in, and for all of those reasons, I think it's a very promising concept, uh, but it's something that I think people need to use a lot of skepticism and a lot of due diligence uh, because, frankly, it's, it's so new uh, that, and, and as we've seen, there's been quite a bit of fraud in this, uh, in this space as well. Yes, absolutely. And I think the number one thing that our listeners should do is get informed and get educated before they uh, start investing in electronic currency. There's a lot of information out there. Um, it's, it's a bit confusing, and there are some pretty good guides and, and websites that try to break it down. There's a fellow named Paul Rosenberg. <clears throat> he's the... Um, He's a founder of Crypto Hippie and a, um, a very a friend of mine, a libertarian. Uh, Paul has written a, a Bitcoin user's guide, and uh, so I would encourage uh, I would encourage listeners to uh, get in touch with uh, with Paul's uh, company. He also has a he also has a, a publishing company, and I forget the name of it, but you can Google his name and and uh, his Bitcoin user's guide is is very useful in terms of just understanding. Yeah, how these things work and, and why it's such a promising concept. Got it, got it. Okay, and what, what was his name? Paul Rosenberg. Paul Rosenberg. Okay, very good. We'll have to put that in the resource. And uh, one last question before we wrap this up, and this is uh, you've, you've provided such great uh, insight and resources. Really appreciate it. Um, I'd like to chunk it up a bit, uh, discuss 
from your perspective, you being around as long as you have in uh, working with asset protection and uh, financial strategies, and you've really been uh, very connected, I think, um, from a global perspective. There's a there's a, a school of thought out there, conspiracy theories out there that our money, right, and our governments are controlled by, you know, a private small group of bankers or very, very wealthy people. Do you have any any ideas or any um, thoughts on that? Well, I, I think that's absolutely true. I mean, there's been a one of the one of the things you can do with um, one of the things you can do with computers now is put together sort of neural m- maps of uh, financial connections between various entities. And, and when you do that, you'll see that by far uh, the entities with the most global financial connections between them are the are the big global banks. So I mean, we can prove beyond a shadow of a doubt now using these these modern uh, neural networking uh, mapping methods that in fact. The, the big banks are the center of, of everything, of all the financial activity. And, and uh, you know, where you have money, that's where political power and, and economic power uh, follows from. So the answer is absolutely. That's, there's no question that that's true. Do you think they control our politics and absolutely. our government? No, no question about it, in my okay. view. Well, it's been my position for a long time, based on the research that I've, that I've done, um, in fact, I, I think I stumbled across G. Edward Griffin's book, uh, Creature from Jekyll Isle, 21 years ago, and uh, somehow that opened up my eyes to, I think, the, the reality of, uh, of money and our banking system and our financial system. Uh, but back then, people would think you really had a tinfoil hat if you talked about it. Today, I think it's become more accepted uh, there's certainly more information, and with the Internet, you can connect the dots. Um, but there's still a lot of mystery and a lot of unknown. You know, you're, you're right about that. I mean, The Creature from Jack Milan was a, was a great seminal work <clears throat> written about this whole, this whole concept, but you're right. It was, you know, at, when, when that was written, it was pre-Internet, and the concepts he was talking about, you know, to get information about them, you had to spend a lot of time in you know dusty libraries and looking at microfilm and you know articles from you know way back when in the newspapers. With the with the internet, we've have a tremendous amount of resources, and with the increase in computer power, we can actually now link uh, you know the different you know, th- these different things together and make these basically network maps and show graphically how this actually works. And, and it's, it's just staggering. Uh, to to appreciate how concentrated the wealth really is. Yeah, so it's interesting that you use the word network. I'm going to say about um, 15 years ago when I first went online, um, and I remember I was online maybe in 1990, uh, I don't know, 1997, 98, 99, there was a website that had, and I'm sure it's out there today, I just haven't done this research in so long, because once you get it, you know, then you just add to your knowledge. But when I was first understanding and learning, it was, you know, I couldn't get enough, right? But there was this amazing um, chart that I printed up with eight and a half by 11 sheets of paper that showed all this, these, these individuals and families that sat on the boards of 
major companies in all the different industries, you know, from media to uh, energy to entertainment to the banks to pharmaceuticals to agriculture, and so many of the same families sat on all these different boards. Yes, that's that's another that's another symbol of it. Absolutely. And so you think about, you know, is there a connection? It, it's not a coincidence. And so many of these people also sit in, you know, the high levels of government and are involved with decision-making on a global basis. And so uh, it is today much easier to connect those dots. But I uh, was curious as to what your position was. And um, not surprisingly, consistent uh, with how I understand uh, the world to work, Right. So, any any last parting thoughts? Well, I'd certainly encourage your uh, your listeners uh, if they want to sign up for our free newsletter. Just go to nestman.com or website. We have a weekly uh, a free letter called Nestman's Notes. We'd be happy to send you, and uh, I would love to uh, love to acquaint uh, ourselves with uh, with your readership. If they'd like to sign up, absolutely. For that. I think you've got a lot of great, valuable information. There are certainly many, many reasons to be concerned about the economic and political trends we see today, whether you're a, you know, a, a Trump fan or not, regardless of your political leanings, I think uh, more and more people today are really concerned. They, they're awake to there's a problem, um, and we're headed in a direction that people aren't really happy about. There are many steps we can take to protect our future. And now is certainly not the time to bury our heads in the sand and pretend that everything will be just fine. Uh, If we make the effort to be informed and proactive, I think we can be in a better position to uh, protect some of our rights and our assets in the future. And, Mark, I think you've got some amazing, valuable resources. Uh, You're certainly a thought leader in this this niche, right, this this certain area, and uh, we'll certainly encourage our listeners to check out your website. Uh, We will post a copy of this podcast on Living Wealthy Radio, along with links to your website, and I really thank you for coming on Living Wealthy Radio today and just sharing your wisdom and your time. Teresa, it's a pleasure and very nice to meet you. So nice to meet you as well. You take good care. All right. Thank you. Have a good day. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye now. You've been listening to Living Wealthy Radio, heard around the web on livingwealthyradio.com, iTunes, and Blog Talk Radio. Download or subscribe to our podcast to hear a new show every week. I am Teresa Kuhn, and I hope you'll join me again next week as I show you ways to live wealthier. Resources are available for you on our website at livingwealthyradio.com.